Hey, guys. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. Next week is Ash Wednesday, and with that begins the season of Lent in the church calendar. This is the season in which we, as Christians, anticipate the the events of the last week of Christ's life, that moment when He enters Jerusalem, when He institutes the Lord's Supper, when He <clears throat> dies on the cross, and when He is resurrected. And beginning next week, we're going to start looking at Paul, his ministry, his letters, his teaching. We exist as a ministry to present to you the great, perplexing, mystifying God of the Bible. So really, if there's... If there's anything we could give you besides just a hunger for knowing this God, there's anything we could give you during this short span of time that we get to be with you as you know, you're in this transitional college phase of life. It, it is the gift of knowing at least how or having a conviction that you must get into the Bible that reveals this great mystifying and perplexing God. And I think many of us, our entry point into the Bible is often Paul. His letters are a little shorter than a lot of the other books, and it's in the New Testament, which supposedly is a little bit easier to understand. I'm not so sure. So we're going to spend the rest of the semester in Paul, learning about the gospel, learning about the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to his life, message, and ministry. But tonight, we're continuing this series, and I want to begin tonight reading some theophanies. From the Bible. A theophany is a direct encounter that reveals God in some striking way. So this great God of the Bible, this perplexing, mystifying God, we, we want to read some of these theophany accounts. Last week we read about Job's encounter, this great theophany from out of a whirlwind. I mean, God spoke out of this natural disaster of a tornado. This was a moving, powerful theophany. Tonight, we have a few more, and I want you just to listen carefully as I read to you some of these accounts from Scripture. Listen to how God places Himself on display, revealing His wonder and His glory. From Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord. He had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Chapter 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. A verb we keep hearing. They trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. From Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then from Ezekiel chapter 1, his call as a prophet. And above the expanse over their heads, there was, like, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it as it were gleaming metal. Like the appearance, like the appearance that looked like, like the likeness of. He doesn't want to say anything that would relate God to some graven image. He can't be captured in an image. Like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And now, the final theophany that we'll look at. From Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him. Put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Down to verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, this is noon. There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them took one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. In other words, let him keep thirsting until maybe something amazing happens. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. This is not, by the way, a pleasant sounding voice. And yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray to God. So, Lord, this is you. Bright and shining like gleaming metal in a throne, a heavenly throne room. Angels shouting out your holiness. A mountain smoking because it cannot even endure you. And then also this scene on a cross. This is you. Somehow, Lord, we ask that we would grasp a little bit more of you tonight. Maybe even a lot more of you. That we would leave tonight stronger convictions about your great power and your great love. And, and you know how tired I am tonight, Lord, but you never sleep. You do not slumber. And you're the only hope of this night. It's you that we've come to hear. So speak to us and show us yourself. We ask this in the name of Jesus who died who rose and who is coming again. Amen. <clears throat> if our gospel cannot make sense to mothers digging through earthquake rubble for their missing children, then it ought not sound forth from safe suburban sanctuaries, right? If the gospel cannot speak in the ears of dismembered children who cannot find their mothers, then it ought not be proclaimed tonight where the, the ground just seems so still and solid. We, we've begun the series with statements like these. And we're talking about God and natural disasters. We're talking about nightmares. We're doing this not, not to welcome you back to the semester with gloom and doom. We're talking about disasters so that we can theologically and biblically wrestle with the reality of unspeakable horror. If the Bible is not big enough for what took place in Port-au-Prince, 
And there's no point in me devoting my life to it, to studying it, to obeying it. We're also talking about these nightmares, disaster, because our, our safe and suburban versions of Christianity often do not supply us with anything really to say that's meaningful in the face of horror. So, and then when we do speak, sometimes what we say is unhelpful or, or even offensive. That's been done already. And I know that the Olympics are coming soon and there's all kinds of other things for the media to begin to be focusing in on. But, but here, here at UCF, we have a vested interest in Haiti that is long-term. I know that after the, work, the, the earthquake, there's a huge emotional compulsion within us all to go, to board a, a plane, to go and do something. But we want this sustained. We want this sustained because Haiti will need help for decades, okay? For, for years to come, for at least another decade. And it was in terrible shape before this ever happened and the news crews were down on the ground. So we're going to be talking about it. And tomorrow night is our first theological coffee house of the semester. Joel's going to help lead us. He and I will both be there to help talk about this together with you. Give you the chance to express some thoughts, ideas, and ask some questions. Talk about it together. Let's review a bit. On the first night, three weeks ago, we asked, or two weeks ago, is that right? Two weeks ago. On the first night, we, we asked if it's right for Christians to attribute natural disasters to God's judgment. And we found that although the Bible does associate disaster with judgment, there are also times when God is not in the wind, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, as we see in 1 Kings 19. We've been in the book of Job a great deal, where the only people God actually judges are those who attribute the disasters with divine judgment. Remember that Job lost his children to a natural disaster, a great wind. From the wild places. Came and toppled the structure down. And crushed all of his ten children. And the story of Job teaches us. It teaches us how to respond to God in times of disaster. And the way we respond to him is with worship. But not just any worship. This worship that we see in Job is head shaven, robe ripped, slammed to the ground worship. It's lament worship. Worship in the dark. A form of worship. A form of worship we don't know very well here. We're also taught in this story how not to respond to the victims of disaster. We don't respond as Job's wife responded, right? We don't say curse God and die. We don't urge people to go ahead and blaspheme because it's that bad. It's never bad enough to curse God, right? We also don't respond to victims of disaster with trite, shallow, theological slogans. As Job's friends responded to Job. We saw last week how this great theophany from out of the whirlwind, how it explodes simplistic worldviews in which only good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. It explodes, explodes this worldview. It also explodes simplistic theology that seeks to limit God, constrain God to certain behavior that's acceptable to us. No, this is a God. Who delights, in, who delights in wild things. Remember how God spoke of wild animals from wild places. And not just that. He also spoke of the ferocious, feral beasts of Behemoth and Leviathan. These great chaos monsters. Whom God delights to keep as his playthings. This is a God who does not have to behave. According to our tidy expectations for how we should act. How we should 
respond. What he should do, what he should not do. To the suffering of Job. No theodicies, no explanations of suffering. No apologetics were offered. Apologetics and theodicies never really suffice. In times of disaster. What God gave Job from the whirlwind was no apology, no explanation, no theodicy, just an explosive theological vision. This is who I am to Job. That's how he consoled and comforted Job. Tonight, we're going to have this theological vision expanded and exploded even more. If it was hard last week, to grasp the, the wildness of God, his absolute freedom to do as he desires without respect, even to the most righteous man on earth. If it was hard to grasp the boldness of God as he presented himself so forcefully, so unapologetically out of a, a whirlwind when it was a wind that actually crushed Job's children. If we struggled to grasp this vision of God, if we found that theophany hard to grasp, that self-revelation of God from the whirlwind, then how will we grasp the theophany of Matthew 27, the, the self-revelation of God from a cross, from the disaster of crucifixion? This is an explosive theological vision. Our Bibles, they just, as we've seen, they don't offer us simplistic explanations for why disaster Strikes. We're not supplied with any easy formulas like disaster always equals divine judgment. It doesn't work that way. The scriptures do not give us answers to those dark and painful lament cries like how long, O Lord, or why, O Lord, that pepper all throughout the Psalms. What our Bible does supply us with is an awful, but yet ultimately hopeful image it's the image of God himself hanging nailed up and naked on a cross, bearing disaster on our behalf. That's what the Bible does give us. I spent I've spent the past 48 hours or so watching someone suffer. Unbelievable pain and misery. We were about to have a UCF staff meeting on Monday morning and uh, Miranda called to tell me about this frightening pain developing in her side. It's a kidney stone. <clears throat> so her ninth month of pregnancy, I think to the day, began with a kidney stone. And when you're pregnant, there's not much they can do to treat a kidney stone. There's not much medication they can give you. They can give you a tiny bit. But... but uh, it does very little. For 36 hours, she laid on this, this hospital bed. Her, her pain too great, even to, to moan out. Even to, to take a deep breath. She couldn't even take a deep breath. 36 hours, it hurt that bad. How long, oh Lord, will this thing be kept inside my wife? Why, oh God, is this happening to us right now? No answers were given, but I've been studying this enough not to expect any, right? The most solid consolation that Miranda and I had to stand on 
It wasn't a trite theological slogan like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Or God has a plan in this. Or just go have a quiet time, Job, as Job's friends gave him. That kind of cheap theology wouldn't have helped Miranda any more than it helped Job. The most solid consolation we found, we found it not in seeking an explanation as to why, but in reminding ourselves of the image, the image of God revealed as naked, nailed up, and dying on a filthy cross. And that on our behalf. The, the word Marina kept using is excruciating. The root word is crux, right? Latin for cross. Uh, when I wrote about the, the, the final passing of the kidney stone, I described it as a crucible from crux, cross. When the doctor came in this, this morning to uh, sign our release papers, he shared about his kidney stone story. He was leaving from a mission trip in Russia, boarded a plane in Moscow, had to get all the way from Moscow to Birmingham, I mean, like 27 hours of travel, with a kidney stone the whole time, bent over double, just puking on the plane, absolute miserable. What kept holding him is thinking about Jesus on the cross, what Jesus went through on the cross. The consolation that we have to offer and to receive in times of disaster is that God has endured the worst disaster of all on our behalf. And this is because the haunting scene we just read in Matthew 27 is actually one of those instances in Scripture when the formula disaster equals judgment applies. This is one of the moments When disaster is attributed to God's judgment. Christ is enduring judgment on our behalf. He's being crushed for our iniquities. To pull the language from Isaiah 52-53. Back earlier, he's having this final meal with his disciples. Jesus tells them, As he offers them the cup, which is full of wine, glistening red. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. What's happening here is judgment so that there might be a forgiveness of sins, a sacrifice on which judgment is enacted so that blood will flow and therefore bring forgiveness of sins, symbolized In this cup, the cup of the Lord's Supper. When Pilate says to the crowd, look, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The people respond saying, his blood be on us and on our children. We'll take responsibility for the blood guilt. We'll take responsibility of his death. We're pleased that he died. There's irony implied here. For those who would believe. His blood would be upon them to cleanse them from their sins. Remember Luke chapter 13? I shared this the first night when we did this. Luke chapter 13, some, some come to Jesus and they say, did you hear about that, that, that brutal act of Pilate when he killed those Galileans and mixed their blood in with the sacrifices, probably at the temple. And It's obvious that Jesus knows what they're getting at is obviously these Galileans are sinners because, you know, bad things only happen to bad people, Jesus. It's the same kind of idea and worldview and theology even that is being counteracted in Job. 
Jesus says, well, listen to this, guys. Did you hear about that tower that fell and crushed those 18 people in the city of Siloam? Did you hear about that freak accident of nature? Did you hear about that? Because I want to tell you this. The people who suffered in that disaster, they're no worse than any of you unless you also repent. Miranda tells me often when we hear about natural disasters, she says, I deserve disaster. I deserve natural disaster. But here, Jesus, we see him at the cross, bearing the disaster of us all. The Tower of Siloam that crushed those people. The same fate awaits us all were it not for the fact that Jesus suffers the disaster of the cross. And while he's up there, he's being mocked, isn't he? Oh, I, just, I just don't get this, how severe and awful this mockery is. Words like, He saved others. Let him save himself. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. But. Behold the restraint of God. Right. In spite of all that mockery. In spite of that agony. He he refuses to save himself. In order that he might save others. So what we see. What we find here in this theophany. Is that the God who. Who sent drops of rain to judge the earth with a flood. In Genesis 6. Shed tears as of blood before bearing the ultimate judgment of the earth. The God who shouted from out of the world. With no explanations for Job's sufferings. Shouted from the cross as he endured the worst of suffering. The God whose holiness caused Isaiah to yearn for cleansing of his sins. He died on the cross to make that cleansing complete. For the forgiveness of sins. The God who shone so brightly as gleaming hot metal in that heavenly throne room will now be identified in the same heavenly throne room as a lamb who appeared to have been slain, as John will see as he writes in his revelation. Our consolation. Our consolation that that we have to offer, that we have to receive in times of disaster is that God has endured the worst disaster of all on our behalf. We have consolation in this that is just unimaginable. There's also hope found here in this passage. Also unimaginable. We look now to that hope. I want you to read with me again, beginning in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion saw... When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. We've already read that the sky had been darkened. The celestial phenomenon taking place. Sky darkening, curtain ripping, earth shaking, rocks splitting, tombs opening, corpses walking. I say this to you. Sometimes earthquakes leave people dead. But sometimes they cause the dead to walk. 
with Jesus' death, the religious systems, the curtain ripping, the, the stones on the very ground, the tombs, everything in the cosmos seems to be heaving under the weight of something happening, something new, something unprecedented, something grand and mysterious and so shocking that the whole cosmos can hardly even bear it. These signs, these portents. I really like that word. I like to describe something as portentous. And this is a portentous scene right here. There's signs. And Jewish readers would know what signs like this might mean. Matter of fact, the readers of the Gospel of Matthew would know. Because back in Matthew chapter 24, he talks about these signs pulling from the history of biblical literature, speaking of celestial signs and signs like earthquakes and the, the, the moon turning to blood and, and, and the stars being uh, falling down to the sky, the earth heaving under the weight of something new. They knew what this was. It signified the end of the old and the beginning of the new. This is eschatological. That is... When the end begins to take place. The new and glorious. Curtain ripping. Earth shaking. Rock splitting. Tombs opening. This is like. Like there's been a gash in all of reality. And things are just bursting apart. And people are bursting out of the grave. Something new is happening. That there's a lot at work here. A lot, of, a lot of biblical background here. Zechariah chapter 14 is one of the big ones. You can go there at some point on your own. Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. Zechariah is hard to understand. This might supply some explanation of uh, Zechariah 14. But the judgment day is at... This is what's being envisioned here as Matthew writes. This beginning of, at least, a season of the day of the Lord, when he comes and begins to make all things right, which includes judgment. But for us as Christians, the judgment of a God who endures judgment on our behalf, that's a judgment we can actually embrace with joy. I say it as a question because it just almost seems too daring to say it, but it's true. The judgment of a God who bears judgment on our behalf is a judgment we can actually welcome. There is fear at work here in this passage. Frightful things are happening. Curtain ripping, earth shaking, rock splitting. But there's also hopeful things, joyful things happening here, right? The dead are escaping death. Somehow from heaven, a wrench got tossed into the great machinery of death. And it's not working as well as it used to. When the dead walk, something is underway. It is frightful and scary, but it is joyful. Sometimes earthquakes leave people dead. But there were earthquakes back in this day from our text. That can bring people to life. Look now at chapter 28. Beginning in verse 1. And after the Sabbath. Toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Went to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The rolling away of the tomb of Jesus, the rolling away of the stone, sealing his tomb, is accompanied with an earthquake. It was that an earthquake and these other horrible, yet in some ways thrilling signs that the Roman centurion and those around him said, this was the Son of God. In the midst of disaster, somehow we serve a God who brings forth new life. This is a God who has emerged from out of the rubble, from out of the rubble of an earthquake to bring new life. A gospel that proclaims a God merciful enough to endure disaster on our behalf and strong enough to emerge from out of the rubble of disaster, that is a gospel that is strong enough for the streets of Port-au-Prince. Amen. When you believe in the resurrection, it is absolutely ludicrous. (laughs) This is the belief against belief. This is the belief that just completely rebels against everything that is real to us. Death just overshadows us. Now, you, you may not experience that overshadowing of death quite as strongly, quite as acutely at this life stage. But when you're in a hospital and you hear someone suffering from dementia across the way, screaming and crying out in the night, crying for help, and they don't know what's happening, or they don't know what's going on, you're aware that death is strong. I used to pastor a church primarily of elderly folks. I performed, I've performed now way more funerals than weddings. I've been in college ministry for almost six years now and pastoral church minister for two. More funerals than weddings. When you believe that the dead can emerge from death, it is a ludicrous hope. But that is the hope that the scriptures encourage us to embrace. We close with this. Ezekiel 37. I want you to turn there. The people of Israel. If they were going to believe. That something good was going to happen. It was a hope against all hope. When they were suffering in exile. When the temple had been destroyed. The very location of God's presence. Had been destroyed. All of reality said that there is no hope for you. You are abandoned by God. You're not going to build, take the stones of the temple and be able to place them back on in and rebuild that thing. They needed a hope beyond imagination. Somehow, many of them grasped this kind of hope. Hope ultimately, real, ultimately realized when that earthquake And that angel came and rolled the stone away from Christ's tomb. In the background of these stories in Matthew, these accounts of what took place, the crucifixion and resurrection, is this vision that Ezekiel had. A vision of a valley full of death. I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) 
Maybe it helped provide emphasis for us. This is a vision of a valley of just death. It's full of death. Listen to what happens to the valley. And to those who filled it with their bones. Ezekiel 37, I begin in verse 1. And by the way, I, I just want to... I want to urge you as you read this and hopefully you will hear it in the context of Ezekiel. The context of an exiled people needing something to believe in. Believing their nation had been entirely destroyed. I want you to also read it as a vision that can give hope to a nation like Haiti that is completely ruined. Okay? Scripture is alive and keeps speaking. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. Not just dead bones, but very dead bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Can you hope beyond imagination, Ezekiel? And I answered, not with a yes. O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. You see breath here. Remember, it's the same word used for spirit in Hebrew. Like the breath, the spirit that entered Adam from dust. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied. There was a sound. And behold, a rattling. This can also be translated earthquake. Behold, a rattling, an earthquake, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Amen. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, the nation of Israel. Behold, they say, 
our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Oh, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We're clean cut off. Let me ask you something, Ezekiel. Can the bones ever live again? Only you know that, Lord. When the word of God speaks to the dead, and when the spirit of God is sent into the dead, there is new life. This is the work Christ came to effect through cross and through empty tomb. The consolation we have to receive and to offer in times of disaster is that God has endured the worst disaster on all our behalf. The hope that we have that we can proclaim, receive, and offer is that God is good enough and strong enough to bring new life out of disaster. Even a disaster Like the cross that left his own son dead and sealed in a tomb. This gospel is strong enough for the darkest places, for the darkest times. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, with... These curtains, this curtain ripping with the earth shaking, the rock splitting, the tombs opening. We ask that you would speak your word into us, that you'd apply this word spoken so strongly into us that you rock us in such a way that you split and tear up within us in such a way. All that needs to be ground up and broken up and busted out of the way for your new life to come in. And Lord, I pray for these students some of whom feel as though they're enduring some sort of disaster and pain and tragedy. Show them, Lord, that you speak to dry bones and you make them live. That in earthquakes, sometimes the result of them is not death, but actually life. Console us, Lord. Give us hope. And God, we ask on behalf of this small nation, that claims that their bones are dried up, that their hope is clean cut off. Oh God, speak your word and send the breath of your spirit that they may live to your glory forever and ever. Amen.